This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show, and Salut Babette. Tonight we're going to follow on from last week's show about Tasmania and the declaration of climate emergency there and we're going to talk about the how. How do you implement policies after you've declared the emergency? So this program is called Transition. We'll talk to Ian Dunlop who is on the advisory board of Breakthrough who's just published a booklet about how local councils can get on the front foot taking action in an emergency situation but he was formerly an international oil, gas and coal industry executive. He's frustrated by what he calls predatory delay. I'm sure you listeners also are frustrated by that delay as the industry continues to make profits despite the climate catastrophe they are fueling. We'll also hear from the last Shell AGM. It was a dynamic piece of audio sent to me by journalist Mick Eight from the Sustainable Hour podcast, and he had it on his show. He sent it to me, and I think you, you'll see just how frustrated ordinary citizens are by the fact that a shell company in this case is going on making profits while they know full well where it's leading. We'll also talk to Oliver Yates, who was the former head of the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, and he was a candidate in the last election, which was called the Climate Election, he didn't win, but he is very much an advocate for the renewable in- industry getting on the front foot and advertising and educating people and really leading the way. He wants to see the industry throwing their weight behind an advertising campaign on renewable energy and how we will benefit from transition. Then we'll talk to a journalist, Mick Eight, part of the team in Geelong who produced the Sustainable Hour and he's very inspired by grassroots activists and the new energy coming from children. He also talks a lot and gets a lot of clips and audio from Europe where the transition is happening. For example, he tells us that Finland aims to be zero carbon by 2035. And then the last person we're talking to is Eitan Lenko, who is the head of the board of Beyond Zero Emissions. And I want to ask him about... Uh, the Green New Deal. He was part of a group in America and he's got some ideas about how you implement the emergency. You declare the emergency and then you put in place lots of programs such as the Green New Deal, which would enormously create jobs. I think after the last election, people said to me, oh, we should have talked up the jobs. And Aitan comments on that. He says, well, you know, if they had opened up the renewable industry, for example, had opened up shop fronts up in Gladstone or Townsville, they might have been able to persuade people that the way forward is jobs in renewable industries and other diversified industries that would mean it wasn't necessary to open up the Galilee Basin or continue with coal extraction and, much worse, Northern Territory gas, which he also has a few comments about. So I think you'll find this very practical program about transition. And listeners, if you have any contacts or people who are part of this transition, who are on the front foot, who are leading the way, please contact us at radio team at bze.org.au because we would love to broadcast their ideas and 
spread the news around about what they're doing. Welcome to the Transition Show. Our guest tonight is Ian Dunlop. I like to think of him as a man who has had a road to Damascus experience. He has the he has been the uh, chairman of the Australian Coal Association and now he works tirelessly for us to leave it all in the ground. His recent article, Flick the Climate Emergency Switch, MPs, demands a new direction. So welcome, Ian. Oh, good evening. Nice to talk to you, Vivian. It's lovely to hear from you too. A lot of people admire you and I expect you've been in a very powerful position and now the people in power... Uh, are seemingly unable to cope with the new reality, which is not new to you. You've been with this for many years, I know. So let's start with the places where the climate emergency thinking is gaining momentum, like the UK. Tell us a bit about how that's working out around the world. Well, I think it's interesting to see that a year ago, nobody was really prepared to talk about the fact that we were facing an existential threat from climate change or that it would need an emergency response, essentially, to get on top of it and really handle the challenge realistically. A year later, and it's, uh, I guess, uh, common currency around the world. I mean, people everywhere are talking about the fact that this is what we now have to do. It's been, obviously, as you said, it's been picked up in the UK, um, initially with the school children's strikes and the Extinction Rebellion initiative. And that spread, um, obviously, very quickly. Uh, you have Greta Thunberg in Sweden and the same sort of initiatives developing here and elsewhere. I think what's really happening is that with all of the events that have been accumulating around the world, extreme weather and so on, it's pretty clear to most people now that something unusual is happening. This is not normal. This is not what we've been experiencing you know, for the last 150 years. And therefore, we do have to start doing something about it. I think the other dimension is that it's pretty clear that the existing political system is not actually capable of handling it as far as we've gone thus far. So something's going to have to change. And I suppose the bottom line of all of this is that people are not, if they if they understand the seriousness of the threat, they're not just going to sit there like rabbits in the headlights and uh, get run over by the climate train. So when I'm starting to see this reaction, and I uh, would anticipate it's going to continue. Well, can you tell us what follows after making the declaration? You declare an emergency, usually all, you know, everything, it all stops pulled out. And I'd like to know what does an emergency action look like when climate change is the threat? Uh, what people are not talking about, as you say, uh, anywhere near enough, is what does that actually mean? I mean, how do you do it? I mean, my perspective on it is that you can draw analogies of what's happened historically. Um, if you look at the entry to World War II, for example, uh, you see some very close analogies where countries literally had to turn their economies inside out and transform them from being consumer societies to uh, a sort of wartime footing. What happens in an emergency is the there has to be an all-out commitment across society in face of the clearly defined threat I mean, one of the problems with climate change is the threat's been there for many, many years now. In fact, uh, two or three decades that we've known about it. But because it's something that's in the future, it's not really easily seen by people in their day-to-day lives, a recognition that this is the one priority thing that has to be addressed. It's more important than anything else. 
and it's going to require an all-out commitment across society to address that threat. Now, that's going to require um, some, I think, some sort of government of what you might call national unity, which is the way it was termed in World War II, where you pick the best possible leaders. They may be politicians, but they may not be. They can come from all sorts of uh, walks of life, as we've seen happen historically. You then get the best possible advice, and you set a very clear, what I would term a normative approach to this, where you say, well, we're here today. We have to get there tomorrow, which in this case is a matter of reducing our, our carbon emissions very quickly. And how do we do it? Um, that is the absolute priority, and everything is focused on, on addressing them. Now, we're obviously not there yet. We're a long, long way from it. But I think we will eventually get there because, I guess, has been demonstrated. Um, it's been pretty clear for years, but I guess the recent election has demonstrated more than anything else is that our political system is actually not capable of handling this threat, uh, either on the right or the left. I mean, the... The politicians have not really focused on what climate change means. And frankly, the ALP are not a great deal better. Well, look, in this election, we saw, you know, big front page ads by Clive Palmer, $60 million apparently spent on advertising just at the last minute to sway us and create fear among the people who wanted those Adani jobs up in Queensland. The idea of historically, you talk of these historic precedents, I always think of that moment where Franklin Roosevelt called the captains of industry, so called into into his office and asked told them to turn things around so that there'd be previously car manufacturers be making tanks and so on. How on earth can we have a government of national unity that doesn't have these fossil fuel industries? And you've been in that industry. You've been you're very familiar with that. How could you possibly... To me, it's unthinkable that they could stop their line of business in a, in a short, sharp swirl like that. The problem, I think, in both the corporate world and in the political world, is we still have a large number of people who just cannot bring themselves to accept that climate change is actually happening. I mean, they are absolute deniers. It's the only reason you see all the support going on for the Adani project and uh, the opening up of Galilee Basin. And uh, it has been the case in pretty much, uh, you know, the, the major oil companies and so on. It's what I call predatory delay. Well, what is your message to these directors of... Uh, Australian companies, but also the multinational companies, because I speak to people, say, in Bangladesh and uh, Pacific Island representatives, and they say these people are climate criminals. What do you say to them? Well, I think what you're seeing is the beginnings of a big change, because the companies, even the big oil companies, are now starting to realise that this is actually very serious. I, I think what you're seeing is that even now, the big fossil fuel companies, the, the Exxons and the Shells and the BPs, are now starting to realize that this is a, a it could be an existential threat uh, in their eyes. And it may very well mean that if they don't take action, their entire business models and their future is going to disappear. Now, I don't think that's been accepted until fairly recently. So you're starting to see change in their attitude. A lot of that's been produced by pressure, firstly, from the investment groups, where they are now saying these are the people who have to look after people's money for 20 or 30 years in the future, big superannuation funds. They're saying, look, uh, you know, this is now going to be a major impact on financial markets unless we do something about it. The same with the insurers. I mean, they're now seeing the cost of these extreme weather events 
and many parts of the world are going to become uninsurable. And the real question you have to ask any company these days is, is not what's going to be the, your, the impact on you, it's what are you going to do as a company to contribute to achieving a two degree C or a one and a half degree C world. It's not a question that's yet being asked, but it, it will be. Uh, another aspect of all this is, is security. Security experts are predicting outright social chaos, as you said in your article. <clears throat> and if we continue on the path we are on, I wonder what the armies and militaries of the world will do. I mean, I can imagine they would react to defend assets and to defend populations. But do you think they are progressive thinking in the way of being aware of how to stem the emissions? Well, I think in many ways the defence, the intelligence world has been ahead of the game on climate change. The military are facing the implications of climate change in the field every day, and they have been for a decade or more. They see it in Syria, they see it in the, you know, the Middle East more widely, uh, in other parts of the world as extreme weather events bite. The, the really big question we're going to have in the future is are we going to end up in uh, basically conflicts breaking out in all directions? Well, that's right. We've had wars over oil, but it seems to me that they've been going to war to defend the flow of the oil and soon it'll be wars to defend water, you know, water rights. And I just wonder when those military and security intelligence people are going to go on the front foot and go into the prevention side? Well, I, I would hope that that is starting to happen. I mean, certainly the, in the US it's occurring where you're getting a lot of people speaking out about the impact of climate change. Even though President Trump doesn't want to even admit it exists. <clears throat> and I think um, the same thing needs to happen here. I think it's up to our intelligence communities if they're doing their job, to confront that and make it clear that this is a very big risk. In fact, I would argue it's the biggest threat that is posed to Australia from now on. And what it does do is raise the issue of, well, why are we spending money on defence in the way we are? If we're faced with major climate impacts and what have you, why are we spending money on submarines and all these other military assets, which frankly are not uh, really going to be needed in the circumstances we're probably getting into. No, and I think in the context of armies of people, like I think you mentioned Extinction Rebellion, armies of people like that throwing themselves onto the roads, you know, to stop the traffic and to throw the public lamp on emergency, but that's not a managed program. Like you say, a government of national unity will be managing the resources of the people and protecting the people, and I feel military need to protect us and be really on the front foot there. I mean, the role of a security and intelligence service is to identify the major threats that are faced by a country and the people and to urge government to take appropriate action. People will understand the situation is grim, but what is your view? I mean, we've just elected another government that's going to do nothing and in America, as you say, they're giving an elected government that, that's doing less than nothing, worse than nothing. So what's your message to people who might be losing heart? Well, look, I think this, this challenge is much bigger than our political process. And it is now, if we are faced with leaders who are not prepared to face up to this sort of reality... It is now a matter of the community in, in, in conjunction with business leaders, progressive business leaders, academics, and the military, and so on, to force them to pay attention. I mean, you know, community elections are one thing. The election had all sorts of reasons why it went the way it did. But the fact is the biggest threat remains climate change. It's not going away. We do have the solutions. In fact, we are probably 
the country in the world that has probably the best opportunities in this new low-carbon era. Yes. And we can't afford to throw it away. So if governments talk about you know, innovation and economic growth and all the positive things for the future, the only way they're going to achieve them is addressing climate change and introducing the solutions we know exist in the best possible way as fast as we can. And the community now have to, uh, you know, other progressive leaders have to push the government to recognize that reality. We don't need the Adani mine. We don't need the Galilee Basin. In fact, what's going on is positively criminal. And I think the other dimension is you have to start thinking it's all very well to supply coal to India and say you're alleviating poverty. But the fact is what we're doing now is exporting poverty to countries like India where the temperatures have already been, you know, in 50 degree plus mm. levels for the last uh, couple of weeks. I mean, people can't work in those conditions. So what are we doing? Just, you know, pouring more oil on the fire. Yes. Crazy stuff. Yeah. Absolutely ludicrous. All right. Well, look, thank you for your leadership. I can see, you know, your voice carries weight because you've really been in this industry. You know how it works and now you've seen how it could work, how things could work differently. Do you see a sort of transition from those big, uh, there's huge money involved. How do you see them, just from my innocent point of view, like how are they just going to wind down the business, do you think, move into other business? I mean, it happens all the time. Businesses change shape. Well, they they have a a choice to make in that if they choose to redirect their funds and their efforts to new low-carbon opportunities, it is an enormous potential. This is going to be the biggest investment period in in probably in world history in making the the transformation to a low-carbon world. But if we leave it too long, and we almost have left it too long, those opportunities are going to disappear. And those companies are going to go out of existence. So, you know, they, they have to get their heads around the fact that in a, a strategic sense, they are now at an extremely critical point in terms of their own future. So self-interest, I hope, um, would actually make people wake up to that fact far quicker than perhaps we might think. All right. Thank you very much. So we've been okay. talking to Ian Dunlop. And uh, very much thank you, Ian, for giving us your time. Thank you. Much appreciated. This little clip is called The Last Shell AGM. It's very exciting to listen to, and it was sent to me by um, Mick Aid from the Sustainable Hour. It's from hashtag story change, and I think they are really trying to change the story about how people go about their business with uh, fossil fuels. So before we pose our question, uh, we would like to explain why and how Shell must fall. Uh, as long as you remain a company that is dedicated to maximizing profit and short-term shareholder value, we know you will not keep fossil fuels in the ground. We know you won't decommission your own infrastructure, nor provide a fair transition for workers, nor compensate damaged communities, nor repair the countless ecosystems that your operations have devoured. So this is why shell must fall. But don't worry, we're not going to question you on any of these things today. Instead, we are here to announce that our coalition is determined to make you, Royal Dutch Shell, fall by any legal, economic, or political means necessary. We hereby commit to cancelling any future shareholder meetings and call upon allies, society, and the government to dismantle you. 
We will tax you, regulate you, split you up, socialize you, nationalize you, expropriate you, prosecute you, and bankrupt you. And while we make your dirty business inoperable, we will make sure to build a clean, affordable, and just energy democracy. So you see, today is a historic day, because today you are witnessing the last ever Shell AGM. <laughs> so, in, because in the midst of a climate emergency, the last thing that we need is the shareholders of a gas and an oil giant who, no offense, are probably not going to be alive by the time we get to the end of the energy transition. To, I'm getting there. You can, you can be patient. Thank you. Many people in the world have been patient with Shell. I ask that you be patient. So we say May 2020 be the first year without a Shell AGM. Excuse me. Excuse me, please. I'm, I'm getting to my question. Look. We owe this woman respect to, to listen to her statements, no matter how disrespectful her statements may be. So we, it, it is not disrespectful to ask for climate justice. It is our duty to save our planet. It is our duty to hold you accountable. It is our duty to listen how you, shareholders, find profit more important than people. Let her speak. If you do not want to listen to your conscience, she will speak. You excuse will hear me, what she me, has to say you would be because quiet. this speak. is the truth. Okay. Show has been denying climate science not. since 1992. Let the women speak. Thank you. Now, you can finish your comments, but try to be brief. We've given you a lot of time. Yes, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you. So... We wanted to finish out in saying that perhaps you and clearly people in this room may look down on us and you may believe that your empire is too big to fail or too big to fall. But at some point, so did the monarchs and the aristocrats. And so it is time not just for you to be on the right side of history. Uh, it is time for your business model to become history. Uh, and so really the only question that we have for the board uh, and also for the shareholders is that since there will be no more AGMs, how are you planning to spend your free day next year? This is part of an interview conducted by the journalist Giles Parkinson. He does a podcast for Renew Economy called Insiders, and he's talking here to Oliver Yates after the t uh, 2019 election. Yeah, look, I mean, there's a lot of people who are pro-renewables, um, clearly. However, um, there's a hell of a lot of people who have information that's been provided to them which they believe is factual, which is, which is really seriously outdated. And, you know, the, the key issue and the factor which is outdated is actually um, how competitive renewables are. They still generally do not believe that renewables are as cheap as other forms of generation, whether it be coal or whether it be nuclear, and they don't believe that there is any path to uh, reaching a scenario where renewables and storage and batteries uh, can produce power as cheaply and, and as reliably as um, traditional you know, coal-fired generation and potentially nuclear. So... There's a real um, lag here um, from the population in understanding 
the economic benefits and, and, and the low cost of energy that will be provided by renewables. And, and I can kind of understand why, Giles, because I think we've all been, you know, even in the industry, I think we've been surprised at the rapid cost decline. And that's for us in the industry. But for those people who are outside of the industry, they're completely blind to the very significant cost reductions that have occurred in the industry and how you know, every time you think, I mean, you, you'd probably agree with this, Giles, every time you think that the costs are going to stop declining, they tend to do it again. I mean, renewables tend to get cheaper yet again each time you think that they've reached a bottom. Look, absolutely. And, um, and, and, I, and I've come across that too in the street. I mean, I've, um, I, I often wear my Solar as the Future t-shirt and um, I walk down the street and um, someone's sort of barefooted, sort of alternative looking. I live up in Byron Bay and they look at me and look at my t-shirt and go, no, 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 mate, it's got to be cold. We've got to, got to have cold to keep the lights on. So this information, you say they're being blinded um, or they're blind to it. I mean, are they being blinded by any particular part of society? I mean, I guess when you're talking about um, people not accepting the fact that the renewables are falling in, in, in cost and can provide sort of reliable energy, I was just thinking, well, maybe you're talking about some of the uh, most of the government and the coalition MPs. But um, what you're finding is that people coming up to you in the booth and saying exactly the same thing. Yeah, and they're saying the same thing as a result of the access to the information. That they have. And that's the message that's not getting through is the positive message of renewables. Um, all you hear is, you know, blackouts in South Australia, is, you know, unreliable power and we need funding and power. And then you have the Minerals Council advertising for, you know, if they're doing it in Japan, why can't we have cheap, clean coal in Australia? And if Japan's doing it, Australia should be doing it. And, and then you have, you know, like, oh, look at France. It's so clean. It's so wonderful as a result of being of nuclear. And there's another whole social media campaign spruiking nuclear. But there is nothing. There's no coordinated explanation to the population in relation to how significant the energy transition has been from the renewable side. And they're failing. I mean, and I, and I think if someone did a, an ad spend or an effort spend in relation to the renewable energy industry, because it is predominantly made up by individual developers who make money and then finish, uh, um, they're not spending in any way the same amount of educating and or securing the views of public opinion. And that's very much reflected on the street. So when people walk up to me with shopping trolleys, mm. they have no idea they have any information other than the information that they hear from media advertising or, or on the news. And, uh, you know, generally we all rail against it, but then, then we're railing against it because we know it's not right. But that's the information that they get. And that's the information that they believe, which is fair enough. Well, I think people need to create an alternative narrative here and, um, and the industry should be looking and, and trying to do a little bit of a study to say how much money is going on the, the other side of the table and work out how they should fund some form of activity. What I was surprised during my election campaign is that through the use of social media, how relatively cheap it is to get a message out uh, isn't that expensive. If you're particularly after an election when there isn't so much competition for media time, your ability to get a message out through social media these days is actually very is actually very cheap, um, and I think uh, the renewable energy industry should be thinking about getting together and putting together a pool of money and undertaking um, an education slash advertising campaign that targets uh, counteracting this um, false knowledge which which you know is in the market. 
it, there, there wasn't enough emphasis on the benefits. And I'm just thinking in terms of costs of um, investment. Um, we're starting to hear more about the hydrogen economy now and the potential of that to create a renewable superpower. Is, is that the key to sort of focus on those positives? Look, I think you can focus on the positives, but I think you need to actually get over the, the negatives that are, that are there. I mean, that, that, that these false beliefs are entrenched and they should be addressed. But showing to people how... Um, an economy can operate on renewables um, is is really important and how future jobs will be created through uh, renewables and how the phase-out of fossil fuels, for example, would save us, say, $40 billion a year in, in exports that we spend on, on imported petroleum. There are a lot of good messages that, that could be put out. You know, who's going to fund that message now? The Labor Party could have put that message out there. Now, um, what about your own um, result? Um, you got slightly under 10%, which uh, may not sound a lot, but I guess um, the opposition vote was sort of split between yourself and Julian Burnside from the Greens. Um, I guess you did at least force Josh Frydenberg, the sitting member, the former um, um, Environment um, and Energy Minister and the current Treasurer, to um, preferences. That was good to see. That, uh, that Josh Frydenberg was forced to uh, preferences and, you know, gets in on the back of um, Clive Palmer's UAP. You know, what a, great, uh, what a great way to secure your seat. Nothing like having the UAP uh, put you in. This is Stephen Pigram from up Broomway, Yauru country, and it's great to be down in Melbourne and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio. Been here for a long time. My name is Greta Thunberg. I am 15 years old and I'm from Sweden. I speak on behalf of climate justice now. Many people say that Sweden is just a small country and it doesn't matter what we do. But I've learned that you are never too small to make a difference. And if a few children can get headlines all over the world just by not going to school, then imagine what we could all do together if we really wanted to. But to do that, we have to speak clearly, no matter how uncomfortable that may be. You only speak of green, eternal economic growth because you are too scared of being unpopular. You only talk about moving forward with the same bad ideas that got us into this mess, even when the only sensible thing to do is pull the emergency brake. You are not mature enough to tell it like it is. Even that burden you leave to us children. But I don't care about being popular. I care about climate justice and a living planet. Our civilization is being sacrificed for the opportunity of a very small number of people to continue making enormous amounts of money. Our biosphere is being sacrificed so that rich people in countries like mine can live in luxury. It is the sufferings of the many which pay for the luxuries of the few. The year 2078, I will celebrate my 75th birthday. If I have children, maybe they will spend that day with me. Maybe they will ask me about you. Maybe they will ask why you didn't do anything while there still was time to act. You say you love your children above all else. 
and yet you are stealing their future in front of their very eyes. Until you start focusing on what needs to be done, rather than what is politically possible, there is no hope. We cannot solve a crisis without treating it as a crisis. We need to keep the fossil fuels in the ground and we need to focus on equity. And if solutions within this system are so impossible to find, then maybe we should change the system itself. We have not come here to beg world leaders to care. You have ignored us in the past and you will ignore us again. We have run out of excuses and we are running out of time. We have come here to let you know that change is coming, whether you like it or not. The real power belongs to the people. Thank you. Mick Aegis with us from the Sustainable Hour. It's a broadcast from Geelong and I've been listening to it for several years and they have quite a big team who seem to be working with them and it's really the only other community radio show like ours that showcases all the climate action going around um, locally but also overseas and we do it, both of us do it every week. So welcome Mick, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Look, you're a journalist and I think you are actually quite cheerful that the climate change story has changed. I'd like to know what signs do you see of a new sort of urgency around that? What cheers me up at the moment is that, you know, as much as we're seeing governments fail us, which in a way is no surprise they have done that for over 30 years, if you look at how emissions have been going up and up and up. What's happening at the moment is that I'm beginning to see maybe... In, in the horizon still, but I'm beginning to see a new solution coming from bottom up, from uh, not just, you know, the, the, the classic saying of, you know, it's, it's the people and so on, but uh, a little bit higher than that, because it's governments at the local level, which are in a way the closest representatives to us, you know, the people, and who we are in contact with face to face, typically locally in a city. Uh, or in an area, in a region, and so on. So we have at the moment 611 local governments around the world which have declared a climate emergency. And, and by doing that, have said, so we also need to deal with the climate situation as if it's an emergency. It's not like, you know, the kind of emergency where the fire is right there. Also, so, we, we don't connect it to the causes of climate change. There was a Fran Kelly interview with Joelle Gurgis, who we have interviewed before. She's a historian of climate. And uh, she was in Darwin for a conference, and Fran Kelly didn't say, but the, these exaggerated, you know, like about 300 days of above normal heat wave, which is the expectation for Darwin, is on the cards. And, and she didn't connect that to the coal seam gas in the Northern Territory or the coal from Queensland and New South Wales. She didn't connect the two. So we exactly. often hear so, these phenomena as... So we have this bizarre situation that, that the scientists are screaming at us that this is an emergency. This is a global emergency. Humanity need, needs to pull ourselves together and do something about it. And yet it's very difficult to explain because, as you say, it's complicated. The connections between this and that, this, the typical argument, and that goes down to the personal level, is, but what can I do? Little me. You know, what difference will it make? We need 
big solutions. This is not a job for me as an individual or as a city council. Uh, we need the government. It's the international community that needs to do something. So we always put it off to somebody else. So I believe that with this new climate emergency uh, movement, in a way, that's beginning to happen with 600 different councils yep. uh, declaring a climate emergency, that becomes, in a way, a public referendum where, where we're beginning to see, for instance, in the UK, 50% of all people that live in the UK live in an area that has declared a climate emergency. That changes the conversation in those areas. When we begin to pass the 50% mark, then it is like a referendum saying, well, maybe our governments are doing much too little, but look, it can't continue like that because people are getting, you know, people get it and they're taking action. It goes down to businesses, to schools, to universities, to museums, arts institutions, and so on. They're all beginning to declare a climate emergency for themselves and then thereby taking the necessary action. I like the line that you're taking here that it's, not this disempowering thing, what can I do, small people, because your program often focuses on local Geelong people, Bellarine Peninsula, all little things that people are doing. And I'm really impressed because they might be sold small gestures in themselves, but by you in your media broadcasting it, I think people living down that way would start to feel quite proud that there's a bit of a fight back. And it's not done in the aggressive way of, you know, setting cars on fire. It's just doing it by persuasion. Yeah, we started out six years ago, and it says it in the title, The Sustainable Hour. We wanted to talk about sustainability and be positive about you know, have conversations about what we can do, not about what, what's going wrong, but about what we can do that's, that's sustainable, basically. And I tell you what a journey it's been, because we must have talked to 500, 600, 700 people by now who live locally in Geelong and who are local change makers in many ways. And the power that they have, that when, you, when you meet them in the studio, we always come out of the studio with this <laughs> lifted uh, yeah. atmosphere in a way yeah. of, wow, I didn't know there were such people here, right here where I live. Yeah. You know? and, and that just, it just it's, it's, it's a healing kind of uh, uh, um, experience because we, when we just sit at home and watch the news or, or on Facebook and so on, we get all the, we get in, in a way overwhelmed by all the negative news. It's so important to go out in the community. Many young people I know felt very gutted by the climate election that you might say the climate lost. And they were saying things like the media caused that perception, the wrong perception, that it was all in the bag for Labour or that, um, you know, that there were all these other considerations of franking credits and so on, all these other smaller issues that were overrode that big global issue. Again, you've got to look maybe sometimes a little bit outside Australia as well. Because, for instance, uh, in Denmark, where I have lived most of my life, we just had an election as well. Yeah. And that was the first election ever where climate change was definitely the number one issue. Everyone talked about it in the election, and it became a defining factor for who won. So, so don't tell me that it's not going to happen here as well. It's just Australia is maybe a little bit deeper into that coal industry, yeah. gas industry, and oh, the money sure. that comes from there yeah. has an influence. Yeah. But that's only for a little bit of time. It's exactly the same. Look at what happened at the Danish election. That's going to happen here just as well. I tell you well, that. Tell us more about it, because I read about it in the paper, but I don't know the people or anything, and I just was terribly happy about it. But tell us more. Well, in the beginning, I thought it was just too equivalent elections because also here in Australia I, I really thought it was a climate election more than ever 
uh, it was really up there, wasn't it? You know, mm. and we even had a hashtag for climate election <laughs> yeah. and so on. Um, and the same thing was happening in Denmark, completely equivalent to that. You know, Greta Thunberg has changed the story up in Europe uh, with all the school kids yeah. going on strike much more intensively than down here in, in Australia. In Australia, we see school kids doing it every three months or something. In, mm. in Europe, it's actually happening every Friday. Uh, in various countries where lots, I mean, mm. thousands and thousands of school children are out mm. there. So it's it's up there in the news and people are talking about it. And I think what, what if, if there is a difference in Denmark, then it is that there wasn't the anti-climate uh, bias. There wasn't the talk about that it doesn't matter. I think people generally all understood that this matters and we need to cut our emissions. And it wasn't uh, so uh, even, against pitted against jobs because here we have this whole Queensland and, you know, a lot of areas where they're that hungry is, for jobs. That is, that is such a ridiculous discussion because in Denmark, <laughs> you know, switching over to green energy equals jobs and Denmark is on that wave. That's the way you create new jobs. It is that you go into new technologies. Yeah, but they're not it's, exporting it's, coal or gas, are they? No, <laughs> because, and maybe that's why we were all early adapters in a way. That's why yeah. we invented, you know, the wind industry in a way was invented in Denmark. Uh, it started up in the 70s because we realized, oh, there's a problem. If we can't get that, that oil down from the Middle East, we are in trouble. What do we do? Well, we have a lot of wind. Can we do something about that? Mm. That's how it all began for us because we didn't have that oil. So, so you're right. Uh, and I think it's the same if you look at the places where there is a lot of fossil fuels in the ground in Canada and other places, Saudi Arabia and so on. The places that are the most lagging behind when it comes to climate action are those places that have plenty in the ground. It's just like in any other game. Uh, it's about how much experience do you have. And the people in the fossil fuel industry, they have been around for a long time and they sure. have some experience. They yeah. know who to contact, who to use for their you know, communication bureaus, etc. Yeah. Uh, all the people who work in the renewable energy and so on are kind of new in the business. Mm. So it's, it's, a, it's a new player in town. And, and that means that it takes a little while before they, they get to know all the tricks. I must no. say, you're very forgiving. <laughs> you're very forgiving. <laughs> and no, uh, it's not as if we've got a lot of time for this thing to turn around. And I notice what you do on your show, you're very positive towards people and you do feature just all these little bits of the puzzle so that we get a bigger picture of something happening which counteracts that awful feeling that you get if you listen to the mainstream media that nothing is happening or Greta Thunberg says no one is doing anything. But you show that it's not true, but... Your show features lots of sound bites from other places, like you had one from the New Zealand Parliament where the UN Secretary gave them compliments to Jacinda Ardern and all of them for their, you know, advanced policy. And then yeah. the UK Parliament, you had Jeremy Corbyn saying that he'd listened to Greta Thunberg and he, he said, we can do it. He was also on the front foot. What are you looking for? It sounds like you've just got an ear for this audio. Well, really, I think it's all about follow your heart. Follow where, what, what excites you. So, so it's really what the sustainable, what you hear in that program reflects what we have met during, in the week that up, leading up to that program. Uh, and that's just, you know, you could say it's coincidental. But, but it's also, you know, you go in a sort of a flow or in a stream of uh, uh, stuff that's coming at you. And then, bang, there's something there. That's interesting. And then, you know, we, we grab it and then we play it simply because we are a little bit excited about it. So it's really just about um, follow your heart, follow where the interest is for yourself, and then hopefully maybe 
it's also interesting for other people out there. So I'm really happy to hear if you think so. I do. <laughs> <laughs> well, and just to tell the listeners, we're speaking to one of the journalists who works on the radio program in Geelong called The Sustainable Hour. If we want to solve this problem with climate change, we can't make, and make this into a war against them against us and so on, no. because really we need to be in it, all of us, including those people in Kutaismar on the other side who are the fossil fuel uh, barons and so on, they actually also, we need to collaborate with them as well. Mm. If we don't do that, we're going to lose. Mm. So, so that's my point is that I think it's good as a wake-up call that we have these sort of events or these symbols that make us see that there's something, there's a struggle going on here and people are passionate about it. We saw it in, in London with uh, you know, 11 days where the city came to a stop in a way because of the extinction rebellion. That was Things happened because yeah. of that. Yeah. But at the same time, that's not going to solve the problem with climate change. That's a much, much deeper problem. It goes much more into uh, how each and every one of us are using energy, uh, what we eat, and, and all the other aspects of climate change. You know. Yeah. And, and that journey for me begins with that we have to be optimistic about it in a way. Because if, if we can't see where we're heading, if we don't have a... A good feeling about that this is going to, uh, for instance, is going to create a lot of jobs and it's going to uh, make us feel safer and it's going to uh, give us all sorts of benefits we hadn't even expected. Then we are not going to get the job done. No, I agree. And many people have spoken to me. We had also an interview with someone from the Frontline Action on coal, and they said that really they were humbled by being in Queensland all that time before the election, and, and the people there said, well, show us the jobs. You know, we don't see it. People from the south come up and talk in this airy-fairy way about transition, just transition, but, like, where are the actual jobs? And I think the the blueprints have to be made, maybe the Labour Party, the unions, the every interested party need to put their intellectual effort into creating a blueprint for that transition. I mean, other countries have done it, but these coal-rich, gas-rich countries like ours are having... It's very sticky, all that profitability, and it's hard for us to leave it alone. Yeah, but uh, definitely look towards uh, countries such as Denmark or or now Finland that have set a target of that they will be zero carbon by 2035. That's a whole country that's saying we can do it. Can I just stop you there? I mean, I'm thinking of Norway because Norway has got a squeaky clean reputation in Norway, but down here it's still a threat to the Great Australian Bight where they are still planning to drill. I don't know if you know when the approvals might come through for that, but I've interviewed many people about that, the uh, yeah, Equinor company. That's a state-owned that's a, company. That's a big international company. With the, I don't even know who is in the board. Don't blame the Norwegians as such for that. You know, uh, these fossil fuel companies, uh, they are international and they work uh, wherever they like, mm. in a way. Uh, it may be that they, it has its foundation up in, in Norway, but who knows how many Norwegians are in the board and so on. Uh, we had a French company that wanted to, to drill for, for gas in Denmark, uh, but we didn't blame the French for that. No, uh, look, I, I know. It's not an international thing. As you say, we're all needed. We need to get on the page. But I think what you're doing and what we're doing, it's a pity that there's so not more media like this that really gives a platform to all those people who are doing something in exactly. all the different ways. But and especially the public broadcasters need to take this up more. They, mm. They've done a great job in, in some areas. For instance, the War on Waste series was yeah. really fantastic. Now we need a war on the climate crisis. When we have a climate emergency, it's their job to actually educate us what we need to do and to create that conversation about solutions. Yeah.
Okay, well, we have to leave it there, Mick. Thank you very much for talking to us and thank you for the show you produced. Tell the listeners uh, what the call sign is for that radio if they're living in Geelong. The Sustainable Hour, climatesafety.info is the website. Okay, thank you very much. (laughs) I asked Eitan Lenko about the Green New Deal. And so the Green New Deal um, is an idea where you take climate change really as the organising principle behind an uh, economic transformation um, and the urgency that's required to uh, mobilise on climate change. And then, you know, you can once you're looking at it through that lens, you can build an economic transition plan, the Green New Deal, that, um, <clears throat> you know, addresses climate change and then incidentally fixes a lot of the intractable issues that have been plaguing the American economy for many years. I don't know if anyone's really talking big about that yet here, but what have they sort of achieved so far? People said at the beginning it was rather sketchy, but what do you know anything about how it's progressing? Well, the biggest uh, impact it's had has probably been on the, uh, the general discourse. So you've got American elections coming up in 2020, yeah. and they really need to position themselves to have some policies and not just say we've got nothing or we don't even believe in it at all. Well, I looked up the Sierra Club's take on this, and they had a dizzying list like um, retrofitting buildings, upgrading infrastructure, revitalising the energy system and restoring the ecosystem. It's all work that could be done. And they said that it's actually starting. And they gave an example, one of them I just thought I'd mention was in Illinois. They've created 7,000 new jobs by getting the existing buildings up to the energy efficiency standards. That's 7,000 each year. And that's already happening and it's happening in California. Do you... Uh, know any other examples in America or here or anywhere where that is actually starting to happen where the with the idea of climate change in mind that people are starting to retrofit and you know upgrade <clears throat> yeah well certainly I mean I, I was lucky luckily lucky enough to um, attend the Al Gore climate reality training in Brisbane recently and uh, one of the stats that Al Gore you know really loved to, to talk about was that in America now the fastest growing job it's growing six times faster than, than, you know, the average job in the American economy, is solar panel installer. And the second fastest growing job is uh, wind turbine technician. So we're already seeing renewable energy playing, starting to play a really big role in the United States economy. You know, uh, you, know you talked about all those different areas that um, where, where we're starting to see activity. And it's interesting if you compare that with Beyond Zero Emissions, Zero Carbon Australia plans, like that, that go across, you know, buildings, yes. energy, land use. So, they, you know, we're, we're talking about all those areas of the economy that BZD have already looked at. And, you know, really, we don't, we don't have a choice. Like, either we're going to take the, the view that humanity is not going to do anything about climate change and potentially leave ourselves on a planet that's not inhabitable, or we're going to pull our finger out and do something about it um, and in that case, we're not going to have a choice. We've left it pretty late, so the transition's going to have to be pretty fast. And, you know, emissions don't just come from um, electricity generation. They come across the whole economy. So that's why we need an economy-wide transformation. Well, you know, I travel around for this BZE radio show, and I go to different <coughs> communities where things are happening, and one was at Tathra. And they had this amazing vision of the whole Bega Valley becoming 100% renewable, but it was going to spike a lot of entrepreneurship there, not necessarily in energy, but in other 
things. You know, the uh, they get a lot of tourists there. There were going to be tourist options. Mm. And there were, the oyster uh, people were going to use the oysters to build artificial reefs offshore to you know, pr- uh, provide a marine environment. There was a lot of sort of restorative work that was involved once they launched this thing. And I thought maybe it doesn't have to be a top-down government policy. Maybe if the <coughs> government, as Giles Parkinson said today, like just government stand out of the way and let it happen in the communities. But what do you think would drive this sort of action that is not just going to enrich corporations, that will really benefit the community? Yeah, well, I think you're right. I think we're at a point now where entrepreneurship can play a role. Like renewable energy, BZD wrote the stationary energy plan back in 2010. Renewables were, were still a lot more expensive than fossil fuels. So really it was a an exercise in showing that it can be done. We're now at the point where renewable energy is the cheapest form of energy, which means that if you have the ability to build out um, an excess of renewable energy, it really allows a space for entrepreneurship. What kinds of things can you do with really cheap, clean electricity may come through at different times of the day or night. What can you do with that that you weren't able to do before with traditional sources of electricity? So there's a huge amount of, um, of entrepreneurship in that. We had Oliver Yates on this program and he said, like he, he was a candidate in the last election and he said he went around all supermarkets and he found a lot of people really didn't know that we need to transition from coal. They really didn't know that renewable energy is getting cheaper by the minute and he felt a huge area of education needed to be done and he remarked on Clive Palmer putting a few million into uh, bad yellow adver- <laughs> advertisements everywhere to frighten us and he said, well, I think the renewable energy should uh, energy industry as an industry should start doing some public education, you know, some advertising and some public mm. awareness. And I wonder, you wrote an article along similar lines and you asked why are the renewable energy people so timid and reluctant to play politics? Do you have an answer for that? Uh, yeah, I don't have a great answer for it. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, you know, if you think about an, an example that I like, if you think about the school strikes for climate, you know, when you have school students out on the street really passionate saying, you know, what we need is, you know, renewable energy to replace coal. We want to um, action on climate change. You've got all these people on the street basically saying, we want your products. You know, we want people to buy your, your product to this, to this industry. Can you imagine if, you know, you had a bunch, you know, hundreds of thousands of people on the street saying, we want coal, you know, genuinely saying we want to use coal, that the coal industry wouldn't get involved and promote what they're doing and, uh, you know, give them money to help them with their campaign. But the renewable energy industry seems to think that that's a separate thing, that's activism, you know, we don't want to, we don't want to be political, we don't want to rock the boat. I mean, they're a young industry, they don't they don't have anywhere near as, as much money as the fossil fuel industry. And there's kind of, there's, um, you know, particular characteristics. A lot of the companies are overseas-based companies that are building the big projects here and they don't particularly want to get involved in, in Australian politics. For all of that, I think the fossil fuel industry has shown that it's really effective business development to get involved politically and to have a political strategy and to start getting influence. But also, as Oliver Yates says, to actually start doing public awareness campaigns. If the renewable industry had set up a, you know, a shop front, in somewhere like Townsville, showing all the jobs that are happening, you know, with a map on the wall, showing all the all the um, projects that are happening in that area, all the jobs that um, each of those projects are creating versus the very small number of jobs um, that something like Adani would create. I think that would have gone a long way to raising yeah. awareness. Renewables are actually great for the economy and it's great for jobs. I, I agree with that. The shop front, the close to the people, somewhere people can step in and talk to you about it because I've interviewed activists up there really against coal and they said, look, we met many Queenslanders who just said, oh, look, well, where are these transition jobs? Show us, show us the jobs. You know, they were 
quite furious at people from the south and from the cities just mm. sort of talking big. Uh, look, the jobs, I think, must be in retrofitting, restoring, upgrading and all of that. But in the last election, I was shocked by the ALP's promise to give $1.5 billion to pipe out gas from the Northern Territory since they've just lifted their moratorium. And just as gas is our fastest growing source of emissions, could they have promised just as much prosperity and jobs if they'd offered $1.5 billion to renewable energy exports? Yeah, well, absolutely. And, you know, that was a shocker of a of election commitment if they were serious about developing energy in the north of Australia. The problem is they're just looking at the wrong technology. I mean, we're at the very end of the gas boom. We know that gas is extremely emissions intensive. You know, you have um, fugitive emissions when, when, you, um, when, when you're extracting gas. Mm-hmm. That's all the huge amount of energy required to liquefy it. Upcoming BZD Northern Territory report will show the Northern Territory's got Australia's best well, one of the world's best solar resources, um, and we could be building a huge amount of renewables up there and then using that energy either locally in the Northern Territory for a range of uses or um, exporting that out to, to different states via um, HVDC cables um, you know, that allow you to transport electricity over long distances without much loss. A far better idea would have been to build, you know, put that money towards building HVDC connections and, and spawning... Um, a huge renewable industry in the Northern Territory that then could export electricity to the East Coast, down south to Adelaide or um, even overseas to Singapore. Well, thank you, Aitan, and thank you for all your service to BZE, which is really, how long, how far back does it go for you? Uh, I started volunteering at BZE back in 2009. Wow, so that's a long time, (laughs) 10 years. 10 years. Super. All right. So Eitan Lenko is... I'm the chair of, um, of the board. Yeah, the chair of the board, but you're also, you've got all, you appear in Renew Economy and other spots, don't you? And I've seen you at various events putting your word in. So I think you're an advocate. Correct. Thank you very much. Thanks tonight to our guests, Ian Dunlop, Oliver Yates and Giles Parkinson, Mick Eight, Bretta Thunberg from the Austrian World Summit of Sustainability Leaders and Eitan Lenko. Thanks also to Andy for production and my name is Vivian Langford. Tune in next week, Monday 5pm to Radio 3CR for the Beyond Zero Missions Community Show. And now, good night and good luck.